Welcome to Resilience Unraveled. Hi everybody and welcome to Resilience Unraveled, a podcast that examines all aspects of personal and organisational resilience. A huge all-encompassing subject that covers the ability to thrive in life by harnessing your cognitive, emotional, physiological and contextual abilities. I share stories from people who have thrived despite remarkable obstacles, as well as highly successful practitioners and experts across a range of topics. And this podcast introduces their amazing stories and expertise, as well as my own reflections, perspectives, strategies and tips, which come from my own synthesis of themes and trends from wider learning. You can go to qedod.com forward slash extras to access offers, tools and resources, including free articles and eBooks. For those of you that would be interested in supporting our work and contributing more proactively, you can find our new Patreon page at patreon.com. Then search for Resilience Space Unraveled. So, let's get started. Enjoy the show. So, hey everybody, welcome back to this podcast. Um, it's been such a long time since last we heard from each other. Wow. So today, an unusual guest, an interesting guest, I might say I'm almost addicted in the desire to talk to Rob Lohman because Rob Lohman is a man that's going to talk to us about addiction. And, and it's such an important thing to talk about. I certainly spend a lot of time talking to, about people and resilience and the things to which they're addicted. And it might be interesting, something for us uh, to unpack later on with Rob that, yeah, I wonder if you're addicted to one thing, that means you're addicted to everything. Who knows? And there's so much that we can unpack here, but... Um, for 30 minutes, we have Rob Lohman's time. So, hi, Rob. How are you? I'm doing amazing, amazing. Thanks for having me on your show. It's a joy. And I can already tell from that gorgeous accent of yours, you're from somewhere exotic. Well, you know, if you can call Denver, Colorado exotic, I'd you know say what? it's exotic here. I tell you what, I'm in the south coast of England. That's exotic. Yes, I can't. I would love, I got to come visit you someday after we get this done. We'll figure Very that welcome. out once this whole COVID-19 yeah. thing's over. So we should do like a house swap because I'd really rather go to Denver, Colorado. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'll, I'll, I'll chat with my wife. We can just do it that way. So. Yeah, great idea. Great idea. So, um, so you guys, how are you coping over there with the whole malarkey that's going on at the moment? You know, um, our household's doing well. Everyone's healthy. We're doing, you know, that's the key. Not, not a whole lot of complaints in this world. So um, I'm, I'm happy. Good. I think a lot of people are very resentful from for government actually working hard to keep us safe for a change, which is unusual, isn't it? Well, you look at it and, and you look at my world of the addiction world, right? There was a Newsweek article recently came out and said that alcohol sales are up by 55% here in the United States. And yeah. I'm not shocked by that whatsoever. No, no, no. That was interesting. Well, let's get into it then, Rob. How would you describe what it is you do? I help people get out of their ruts and find purpose in their life, really away from addiction or just being stuck in their life to find more purpose and, and finding something to strive for. Okay. And so how did you, what was your journey that led you into this? <laughs> well, like most of us that get in the addiction field, uh, yeah. addiction, of course, yeah. uh, you know, long story short in that regard, just started drinking when I was 14, good Christian home. Got sober at age 29 after an attempted suicide, which is which was a very unique evening for, in itself. And through a series of events in the recovery world, I found myself working in the field and just helping people. Yes. And it's interesting addiction, isn't it? Because 
it's not something you plan to do, isn't it? It almost sneaks up on people. Is, is that fair? Yeah, I would definitely say so. I don't think most of us come out of the womb saying, man, I want to be an addict or an alcoholic or a gambling addict or a shopping addict or something. But yeah. there's a lot of cross addiction that goes on out there. Definitely for sure. And at 14 years old, you know, growing up in a good Christian home, I mean, who thought at the first taste, the first shotgun of a beer that it would then have me for the next 15 years of my life. Yes. And people don't understand sometimes that there is a, a chemical cascade that happens for an addict with alcohol. They just think it's like a lifestyle thing. Oh, you just can't take it or just stop. They'll say things like that, but people don't understand that, do they? Yeah, not really. I mean, I feel like for me, it was like a switch just kind of went on. It was like, now I felt comfortable around people. But from the outside, you never would know that because I was your goofy, funny kid that kind of fit in anywhere. But man, inside, I just felt like I just did not fit in a lot yeah. of places. What do you What do you think about um, the sort of the Southern U- European uh, and some of the more um, Middle Eastern cultures where kids are brought up with alcohol from a very early age and I don't know specifically the numbers for addiction, but they seem to be lower than than the sort of the American UK sort of cultures where it's it's sort of a well in America in particular it seems to be quite a big deal to drink, doesn't it? Yeah, maybe it's because we have this twenty one year old, you know, you gotta be twenty one years or older to drink alcohol. So prior to that, you gotta be sneaky, you gotta kinda you wanna strive for that, right? And then when you get there, it's kinda like, well, I'm twenty one, no big deal. But for a lot of people, like a lot of people I sit down and talk to and help with, it started when they were 10, 11, 14 years old when alcohol entered the picture of their life and then it started taking over over time. Yeah. And I mean, this, let's, let's start with the hopeful bit. If someone wants to be cured of an addiction, are they curable? Yeah, definitely. Good. And so, so tell me, so tell me the process and someone will come and talk to you and say, Hey, I'm an addict of whatever it is. So what's the process you use to be able to help people? You know, there's a bunch of different ways. I mean, we sit there and talk about, I I'm in the world of doing interventions. So families come to me in this crisis moment, right? So a lot of times it's the family that reaches out to me and says, Hey, Bobby, Billy, Sarah, Joe, whomever, they're just drinking too much or something's off. Can you help us? Yeah. And then there's the recovery coaching side of things where someone just says, Hey, I know what you do. I want some help breaking free from addictions. And because it's so vast, it really, there's a lot of different ways to really help people move forward, but really it's identifying what's the pain point. Why are they concerned? What does their life look like? And then we start unpacking it from there. Yeah. So you see that there is a, that it, that the drinking can sometimes, if it is drinking, that the addiction sometimes can be the outcome rather than the cause. If you see what I mean. Yes. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, my wife always loves to say, I always give her credit for this. And one of her counselors always said that addiction is the inability to deal with emotional pain. Right. So because we're in pain of something, and a lot of times it's not this major traumatic thing that happened. It was just a progressive thing. But since our brains, don't stop developing till we're 26 yeah. as men, right? Along the way, we don't learn how to do conflict resolution well and all these things. So a lot of times it's not some major thing, but it's a progressive piece. And I'm a huge fan of counseling, coaching, and community being a part of someone's recovery. Right. 
So, I mean, I've heard of the 12-step program because obviously it's very popularized in, in, in the States. Certainly, it's, it's not something we use so much over here, I don't think. So, so do you use methods like that or is that just part of the sort of toolkit? Uh, part of the toolkit. I mean, I got sober in 2001. Again, as I mentioned earlier, after an attempted suicide where my dog actually saved my life. And back then it was kind of like AA was kind of 12 steps was kind of like the big thing back then. But yes. now there's so many different things like smart recovery, celebrate recovery, Alcoholics Anonymous, yes. um, a bunch of different modules, but also a lot of different addiction type resources out there for people to go to, to actually get help. So, so it's part of what you do is you match the, the person with the toolkit rather than saying we're AA and we oppose the toolkit on whatever the situation is. Is, is that the approach? Yeah. I mean, especially now, cause there's like medically assisted treatment or medically assisted therapy that people say, well, you're not sober. If you're still, you know, shooting heroin, if you're sober off of alcohol, well, it's like, Hey, we got rid of the alcohol. Yes. You know, now let's work on this piece. And so for me, it's a progressive, uh, not progressive, but it's a process to help someone find a better way to live. Cause they're going to figure it out by trial and error. Like, Hey, maybe I think I can have a beer again. Well, I don't know. I'm not you personally, but we talk about parameters around that. So I'm not one that just says, stop everything now. I got to know what's going on in the psychology of their brain. And I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a doctor, but I'm a guy that's been sober for a real long time and had a lot of training with coaching and interventions and all these people in my wheelhouse with therapists and counseling centers and treatment centers that I can refer to as my network of people to get people the right help. Yes. So, so you've, um, you've, you've, you've talked about the suicide thing twice now, and obviously I'm going to come back and talk about that. So for those of you who are sitting there thinking, for goodness sake, ask him about the suicide. It's coming. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but the, um, oh God, I was going to ask you now. I got so amused at my own jokes. <laughs> but, it's good. If you can't laugh at yourself, who can you laugh with? I mean, most people are laughing at me. That's the trouble. So I have to join them. Um, but is there, a, is there a sort of correlation with addiction and suicide? Is there, is there anything in that? Because we know about the, the numbers of male suicides being, you know, uh, almost the highest cause of death up to a certain age. So I'm just wondering well, about that link. Yeah. I mean, there's lots, there's lots of just self-loathing, you know, believe in the false narratives in our brains that we'd be better if we weren't here. Shame, guilt. I've hurt so many people that, you know, I'd probably just be better off if I just disappeared. Yes. And so, yeah, I mean, suicide rates are huge in the addiction world and there's a lot of reasons. I mean, we're, we're dealing with, we're not, we're dealing with depression. We're dealing with, yeah. you know, bipolar type behaviors that are really, a lot of times I think misdiagnosed just because of the erratic behavior of using multiple cornucopia of, of drugs and alcohol in our addictions. Yeah. yeah, it's very true. But do you think people who commit suicides tend to have addictive personalities or have a, an addiction or is it the other way around that if you're addicted, you're more likely to commit suicide or is there no correlation between those two things? There probably is, but I can just say I haven't done a ton of research on that to speak into it. But I just know that when we have people in addictions where we have all those other symptoms, right? Because we yeah. drink because we really are depressed in a yes. lot of ways and we are full of all these things. So we use alcohol, drugs, gambling, sex, shopping to avoid that stuff. But when yeah. it gets bad enough, we can look back on it and just say, wow, look at that path of destruction. 
and we take those steps a lot of times to, and, and a lot of people that I talk to a lot deal with suicide ideation, which I dealt with a lot of. Yeah. And my buddy Frank King talks a lot about suicide ideation and just the thing of just like, we think about it. We don't want to do it, but the more you think about stuff, the chances of it accidentally happening definitely increase. Yes. That's very interesting. It was interesting listening to you talking. I was very minded about well, Frank King's been on this podcast and, uh, Oh, cool. Yeah, he and I um, were both sad, lonely old men sitting in um, hotel rooms on the opposite side of the world interviewing each other. <laughs> <laughs> Frank's great. He, he's the one that actually talked, introduced me to the, really, the idea of suicide ideation and yes. the, the podcast network I'm a part of too is, is pretty yes. amazing. So I love Frank. And I think that's that idea of, um, oh, I should do this, should I do that, or should I commit suicide today was really a real shocker for me because actually, and, and, it's, and, it's, and it's the thing, isn't it, where people say, why should they be coached by you? But actually there's that thing about if you've been through it, this is one of the things in particular that having been through it, you do have a unique perspective, don't you? And I mean, you say, right, I'm not a psychologist. I'm not this, I'm not that, but you're someone who has, has, has walked this path. So, so tell us more about your own story then. And, and come on, you, you have to, we need, we need to know about this heroic dog. Well, first I got to tell you, in, in, in a chuckling moment of a suicide attempt, I just got to share this with you because this is how, when we think about things, they can spontaneously happen, mm. right? And one time, because I also dealt with a gambling addiction. So I've been off substances 18 years, but gambling addiction about 16 months. Oh, wow. Okay. Not even knowing I needed to deal with it until I realized <laughs> the mental part of it. Yeah. But back in my drinking days, I was in this period of time where I just, I knew I needed to stop drinking but I wasn't ready to stop drinking yet. Yeah. Right. And we went on a, a work trip. I, I committed to myself. I wasn't going to drink for three weeks or whatever. So I stopped drinking about three weeks. We went on this work trip out to Las Vegas in a real estate convention. And I drank non-alcoholic beer and I fake gambled that evening. And I'm like, I can do this. So the next night I just got completely toasted and hammered and was gambling like crazy. And I had turned about, you know, couple hundred dollars into about ten thousand dollars in gambling so sober i'm pretty good and then i got drunk and then i end up losing it all yes but but then i remember going back to my hotel room and i don't know it was like 12 or 13 stories up in this hotel room and this was not a, a thought a plan like hey this is a great idea but all of a sudden i have this desk chair like they have in your hotel rooms and i was just running as fast as i could towards the window of my hotel room to just follow the chair right out the window and the chair did not break the window. It bounced off the window, hit me in the head, knocked me on the ground. And I am just laughing in my hotel room by myself. Yeah. Like, what did you just do? Like, what if you would have, like, what if that would have happened? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Scared the heck out of me. And I never told anyone about it because they think I was nuts. Right. But, but those were, those just, insane moments that just kind of happened in my yeah. addictions because I was full of shame and guilt and self-loathing and I hated who I was becoming. Right. Yeah. And then the day that kind of came, uh, June 7th, 2001. And I was hanging out in a bar in Fort Wayne, Indiana and keep in mind several months prior to this, I was dealing a lot with suicide ideation where I'd be driving down the highway and I would see my car veer off the highway and like hit a median and explode. Yeah. And I would see myself dead on the side of the highway. Right. And this was happening more and more and more. And I didn't know what was going on. But again, 
I can't tell anybody about it because my boss is going to think I'm nuts and you know, all these things. So, but one night I was hanging out in a bar in Fort Wayne, Indiana. And I always joke that I went out eight nights a week, but I drank and drove every night, you know? So I was, I was a complete reckless person. Yeah. And hanging out in the bar, all these girls, loud music. And all of a sudden the bar gets completely dead silent. And I audibly hear the words, you're done. And then the bar got really loud again. And I looked at my buddy, Sean O'Brien. I was like, dude, I got to go home. I think I'm finally done drinking. Like God is answering my prayers, right? Like I just want to be done. And he laughs because he knows I've said this, you know, I just wanted to stop drinking and and we didn't. But I went home that night and it was different because I was like sober, but I was drunk. Yes. I was in the space of like, what the heck's happening right now? Yes. And I went home and I had about 12 flights of stairs, you know, went up to my little one bedroom apartment in Fort Wayne, Indiana. And I walked right past my dog, Jake, and put about 350 pounds on the barbell in the middle of my living room and laid down on my workout bench. And I picked up that barbell and just unhinged my elbows and dropped the weight. And in the midst of me unhinging my elbows and keep in mind, this is like like multi-light milliseconds of time, right? Yeah. But what I recall is that the bar stopped and I looked down at my dog, Jake, who was nudging my knee, just with those puppy dog eyes, just looking at me like, who, who's going to, you know, like, who's going to feed me tomorrow yeah. morning, dad? What are you doing? Yeah. And that was my first thought was who's going to feed you tomorrow yes. if I do this. And I started thinking about my parents and my brother and just all the good things. Right. And I put the bar back. Yes. And when I say I put the bar back for me, I say it was God put the bar back because I could not lift that much weight sober. Yes. But here I was with my elbows, my elbows unhinged. And I just believe that God intervened in my life through my dog Yes. and said, I'm not done with you, son. Wow. That is, I'm glad we, I'm glad we paused and heard, heard that story. And, and, and that's a story I guess you've heard a lot of times from other people. Oh yeah. I mean, we unplanned moments, we get to those points, even you hear all these overdoses right in the, in the world and stuff, people overdosing. Well, it's not an intentional overdose for the most part. Yes. It's just, they're just really trying to escape. And I was trying to escape from my life and I was $67,000 in credit card debt at that time. Yeah. Because I just thought I'd hit the big real estate deal someday. And I will tell you this though, the amazing thing about that is that I'm in this like real small percentage of people at this point. Because the next day, my aunt actually took me. I called my parents in the morning and just said, Mom and Dad, I need some help. I can't quit drinking and gambling, and I just need help. And that was my mom's answer prayer for years, that she just knew I was off, but not how far off I was. But my aunt picks me up, parks my car on the curb. We walk straight through the galleyway of a bar, right to the back of a bar to an AA meeting. And these people were happy, joyous, and free. And I was in, I bought in. I'm like, man, that is, that is it. But I didn't, I have not had one craving to use again since that day, 18 years ago. And I didn't go through detox or withdrawal. Really? And, and it was such a journey of recovery. And I want to encourage people listening right now that I don't care how long you've been sober or clean off of whatever you insert addiction here. If we're not dealing with our spiritual maintenance every single day yeah then what happened to me in year 11 of my recovery could happen to you yeah and i'll just give this a 
you know, like a 45 second snapshot. But, you know, at this point, year 11 of my recovery, I'm married. I have a young son, a young daughter, and I am dealing a lot with suicide ideation again. Yeah. Cause I was gambling like crazy because I was in financial fear. So my faith was put on the shelf. Fear crept in. Right. And then in year 11 of my recovery, my, I had a major mental nervous breakdown. You can go read about it on my website or whatever. But that mental breakdown actually led me to a 13-year prison sentence right. in year 11 of my recovery, to which, thank God, I only served 10 and a half months in a minimum security prison. But in that time period I was away, I figured out who the heck I was again. Yeah. And what was important to me, what was the center of my life. Yeah. And my amazing wife stayed with me through all this. We've worked through wow. this. And, um, but the pain I caused a lot of people was just insane. And yes. through that, though, I learned what I need to have in place in my life. Yeah. And I encourage people to have a place in their own lives is community. Yeah. You know, figure out what the past was look like. Where the heck do you want to go? Yeah. And now I get to work with people that are coming out of prison. I get to work with people in addictions. I get to work with families. And so in some weird way, like I'm actually grateful for the breakdown because yes. it gave me a huge perspective on life. And now I know the value of like what I need to do each day to um, yeah. <laughs> stay on the beam, if you will. Yeah. No, I understand that. That's, and, and I think your point about community is really well made. And, um, and, and I was fascinated when you said earlier that actually you deal with a lot of people where the families have, are they the ones that come to see you? And, it's, and I think sometimes for addicts, they, don't, they lose sight of those around them, don't they? The world sort of narrows in. They become obsessed with themselves. And they don't realize that the, I mean, I'm teaching you to suck eggs, you know, sorry about this. But, um, no, no, but, you're right. But you, but you get that thing, don't you, where um, families are your... They're your salvation and your cure, but they're the people you're treating the worst. So, I, I mean, so that's interesting. When you get families coming to see you to stage an intervention, is that, is that successful generally, or is it normally more when the addict themselves comes to see you? Well, it's always great when the person suffering from addictions comes to someone for help. Yeah, yeah. But a lot of times they can't even see it. And it's you asking that question is, is really cool because I'm doing this big series right now called the art of intervention project, right? Where I'm actually interviewing interventionists around the world on how they help families and what their, what their little tricks of the trade are, if you will. And it's, it's really fascinating all these stories and everything coming out. So I'm authoring a book called the art of intervention project and wow, I'm excited because it's going to be a resource for exactly the question you just asked for people Brilliant. to read and say, how in the heck am I going to help my loved one yeah. get on the right track? Because a lot of times the family is sicker than the person with the addiction. Yes. Because their addiction is their loved one that's the addict. Yes. Right? But they're doing the best they can with the tools they have to help them up to this point. And I just say, like there's a friend of mine, a colleague of mine, uh, Dr. Rob Weiss, and he talks about pro-dependence versus codependence. Yes. And he talks about those pro-dependence like, hey – you know, Russell, you've done the best you can to help your loved one. And everything you did, you seemed it was going to be helping them move to a place of safety. Well, now, what if we look at doing something different? Instead of saying, Russell, you're such an enabler. You're killing your kid. I yes. can't believe you did that. Like, that's what a lot of the, 
addiction world has been yeah. to try to help people is shaming them into helping. Yes. But now if we can, if we can encourage, encourage them and empower them into saying, Hey, we can do this. And the family needs so much help, just as much help as the person with the addiction. That's fascinating because I think, um, and I love that idea because that idea of um, treating, treating the whole system. Oh yeah. Is really important, isn't it? Because, because that they have, they must have so many of their, well, you, you see it, don't you? I mean, especially when you have, I mean, the, mo- I mean, the worst thing for that must be some sort of sexual addiction where you've got someone who's, I mean, I often bump into people who are addicted with pornography or, you know, strange sexual pro- proclivities. And they're often hiding this from the family, but it, but it plays out. I mean, the net effect is they're not interested in the family because actually they're more interested in the dopamine hit they're getting from something else. And, oh, yeah. And that's, that's a real horror story to deal with. I think people sometimes understand alcohol. I'm not saying accept or condone, but they understand it more than they understand some of the other addictions. They, they, well, and that, because actually you lose your community, don't you? Because you're almost addicted to the negative, the downside of your community. Yeah, well, the funny thing is, when I mentioned earlier about the, my addiction, my gambling addiction, is I didn't actually know I needed to work on it yeah. until I got into the addiction field. Right. And I started learning about, I didn't know what dopamine was. I didn't know about dopamine hits and all those things because, you know, gambling, like life is a risk. So there's all sorts of nuances there. Yeah. But when you deal with sex addiction and food addiction, they say gambling, sex, and food. A lot of those play into each other because we're dealing with these dopamine releases because we still have to eat. Yeah. We, we're still married and we want to have sexual, you know, intimacy with our spouses and people and in intimacy, which, you know, is immature in relationships as I was earlier is not just about the physical act. It's, yes. it's just loving Love. your spouse yeah. well yeah. and feeling connected. So yeah. when we look at the dopamine stuff, it's really fascinating when you're dopamine deficient that you're trying to get your hit somewhere, which is, yeah. you know, cause my, the thing I went to prison for was arson uh, I see. and in a mental blackout is what yeah. I ended up, but, but it was, in in this weird way, when you look at it, you know, you're just trying to seek some high somewhere and who knows what it is. And And, it's just fascinating. And you can see the damage youngsters, especially teenage boys do to brains with the, the ease of access to really extreme pornography. And in a sense, their ability to ever get that high again is almost, you have to be on some sort of really, uh, big alcohol push or as you say gambling gambling or some of the big drugs because i mean some of those big drugs are really i mean it's interesting alcohol isn't it because they always say if you brought alcohol to the market now it would never be allowed because the effects of it are so appalling and i know when i gave up drinking many years ago i remember going home to my parents and saying i don't drink anymore and my dad said to me oh that's really good to hear that so they sat down and said well so would you like a beer then instead i said <laughs> i think you'll find beer is alcohol <laughs> Yeah. And, you, and, you, and we get a lot of this sort of idea. I see there's a lot from work-based coaching where you'll talk about someone's lifestyle, maybe in terms of the resilience and such like, and say, oh, no, I'll get home at night and you'll sit down, relax, and I'll have a glass of wine. I say, okay, glass of wine. How big's the glass? And they'll say, oh, yeah. And I say, well, how quickly do you get through that bottle of wine? They say, well, maybe, you know, once, once every other night. So I said, you're drinking half a bottle of wine a night. That's what you're telling me. It's the glass is a quarter of a bottle. And they say, yes. I say, so you're drinking this much a week. They say yes. And it's your point about addiction, isn't it? People have stumbled into being social, social, social um, alcohol addicts. Oh, yeah. By mistake. 
Yeah, it, it really is. And one of the questions I like to ask people too, when you're bringing that up is that I say, how do you start feeling when your alcohol supply is getting to the end? Great. And it's like, Oh, I, I have to go get in a bottle because I know I won't have any tomorrow night. I'm like, maybe that's something to take a look at. Yeah. That's a great question. Great question. Yeah, well, and then that, Rob, that throws people off. Rob, I, I know you and I, I certainly would love to talk to you a lot longer, but I'm going to be very respectful of your time here. Um, and I'd love to talk to you again when that book's ready to drop because I think sure. that's absolutely fascinating. But um, look, if people would like to talk to you, get a hold of you, consume your work, maybe even have an intervention because I'm assuming you work online and you can work anyway, how, what's the best way that people can get hold of you and see what you've been up to? I always say call me. 970-331-4469 is the fastest, easiest way to text or call. But if you want to go check me out, learn a little more about the website and other things that I do, just go to liftedfromtherut.com and rut has one T in it. So liftedfromtherut.com. Yeah. Brilliant. And I'm all over social media too. I do. I love doing like Facebook live and just really elevating other professionals. It's not about me, but it's like, Hey, what can other people bring to the table? And in the meantime, yeah, I do interventions and coaching and podcasting and a bunch of other advocacy work too. And I think you have your own podcast. Is that right? Yeah. It's called beyond the bars radio. Very good. And I guess you can find that on all the usual podcasty places. Yep. Same channel as you're on. Frank, you've been a, sorry, Frank, Rob, you've been a total joy to talk to you. Thank you so much for your time. You take care. Yeah. Cool, man. Hi everybody. I hope you found that episode useful and interesting. Feedback is always welcomed, and if you are in the mood to subscribe to us or even leave a comment on iTunes or Stitcher, that would be amazing. If you want to suggest ideas or even people you would like me to interview, then reach out to us at qedod.com forward slash contact. As I said earlier, you can go to qedod.com forward slash podcast for show notes or follow the links. And you can go to qedod.com forward slash extras to access offers, tools and resources, including free articles and ebooks. For those of you that would be interested in supporting our work and contributing more proactively, you can find our new Patreon page at patreon.com, then search for Resilience Unraveled. I look forward to being in your ear next time around. Take care.